Welcome to another edition of the Inside Scoop. My name is Neil Crawford, and I'm your host and also the founder of Anytime Soccer Training. The Inside Scoop is a podcast dedicated to helping parents learn about the soccer pathways that would be available to them if they lived in another city around the world. This week's episode, we took we went back to Germany and took an even deeper dive into the German youth soccer system. And we did that by interviewing an American parent living in Germany who has successfully navigated that system. It is a fascinating interview. His son plays at one of the highest level in the German youth um, soccer system and also had an opportunity to try out for a Bundesliga team. And I found it particularly topical considering uh, a number of Americans have signed with German first, second, and third division clubs. So it's really good to get some insight on what they're doing over there to help develop so many of our American players and what are the, some of the takeaways that we may have as we apply it to soccer in the States. So that's the inside scoop. And then we, in addition to that, we launched the series that we're calling Raising the Whole Child. And if you're not familiar with that, there's so much information out there that our parents need. And, and as part of the Anytime Soccer Training mission, we want to provide you with some actionable takeaways that you can use to support your child in in soccer and in life in a positive, not negative way. And so raising the whole child, what we're going to do is interview experts to focus on all the various um, disciplines that you may, as a parent trainer, may come in contact with in terms of raising your child. And so the first interview was with the CEO of the College Athletic Advisor, Mr. Dave Morris. And and the biggest takeaway I got from um, that interview was his website provides an actionable and very detailed tool that your child can use to narrow down, narrow down their college search or at least assess their personality and get an idea of where they may want to attend. And then key actionable steps that they should be doing at each grade level to ensure their recruiting process is successful. And that's a free tool on their website at the collegeathleticadvisor.com that I encourage all of my parents of high school and even junior high um, kids to check out. So now we're going to go on to the show. And this portion of the show is one of those shows where I drop a tip that I hope the parent trainer finds useful and it's usually a tip based on my own experience and my own observations. Now the thing about it is and the reason I hesitate because I got to tee this up this particular tip that I'm going to drop is not 100% for everybody and I'm not even going to argue it's 100% correct or a 100% tip. It's one of the many things, the tip is one of the many things I look at, though, when I start evaluating um, youth soccer clubs for my child. It's almost like a quick and dirty screen screening process. So if I had to look at 50 youth soccer clubs, it's a quick way for me to narrow down 
um, which ones may be a good fit for my child. So we're going to get into that at the end of the show. But before we go there, I'm going to talk about something um, dealing with youth soccer clubs that I see. And the reason I'm going to share this with you guys for public consumption is because we are also going to launch a series or mini series uh, entitled um, The Perfect Soccer Parent. And what that series is going to do is we're going to interview coaches, personal trainers, and club directors in the youth soccer system in America. We're going to interview those folks and get from them what they recommend if they could just wave a magic wand and could produce the perfect soccer parent, get from them what that parent is doing in detail. Right. And we're going to, and I'm going to put a lot of pressure on them to think through this and not give us a lot of fluff, you know, based on their experience as a youth soccer player and based on what they're seeing, because they would have probably interacted with hundreds, if not thousands of parents. What are they seeing that works? and doesn't work and what are the outcomes and, and let me be clear about that so it's one thing to say to the parents you know hmm, let's get an example uh you don't have to do anything just drop them off at the club and we're going to take care of it and we just want you to support them and that's fine and that actually may be the best advice you know especially considering uh the state of some of our parent um children relationships as as it relates to athletics. But what I'm going to challenge my guests to do is explain, give us examples of how that has worked because they would have seen children from the, you know, U8 all the way up to you, whatever, just show us how their recommendation plays out in detail. And then for our guests who, you know, want us to do something or be engaged, give us details on what that looks like at the club and away from the pitch. Because I got to I got to be honest, when you go on social media, you don't, it only takes two seconds and you're going to see folks who I would consider to be part of the youth soccer establishment um, addressing their concerns and very legitimate concerns. But those concerns are targeted primarily to what I call our crazy cousins, the crazy soccer parent. Right. And that message needs to be out there. And that message needs to be heard. You know, you can't be yelling at your kids on the sideline. You can't be waking your kid up at five in the morning and forcing them to train or some other, you know, ex extreme example. That message needs to be heard. You can't, you know, change coach and change clubs every two minutes and expect um, that to be a positive outcome for your child. That needs to be heard. But what we don't hear as parent trainers, because we're sort of in the middle of this, Yes, we're parents, and yes, we feel a lot of these same emotions, but we try to be reflective. We try to put this stuff in perspective, but at the same time, again, we're not outsourcing 100% of our ch children's development to someone else. And we're sort of caught in the middle because we see the perspective of why they're talking to these crazy parents. But there are some legitimate concerns we have that, in many cases, if we raise them, we're just lumped in with our crazy parents or youth soccer in general and the clubs that we deal with and the people that we deal with don't seem very responsive or even have the tools to respond to our concerns. So that's the, that's what we want to sort of unpack and peel the onion, if you will, on, uh, on that series of the perfect soccer parent. I'm really looking forward to that. And that, that brings me to 
the purpose of this podcast today. So yes, I'm going to provide a tip to our soccer parent trainers out there, but I'm also going to give an opinion first about um, something I see a lot in the youth soccer uh, social media space. And I'm kind of giving this opinion not to make a recommendation. I'm not qualified to do that. Given this opinion is one perspective I see so that um, I'm going to ask our club directors and the folks in the pros and call and the coaches that I interview. I'm going to ask them to listen to this opinion as a way to help us start shaping the conversation um, when they're on. And again, this is in the no judgment zone. I love my coaches. I am a coach. I love my personal trainers. I am a personal trainer and I run a skills clinic and I know how hard it is to work with someone else's child, especially lots of them. So this is a no judgment zone. As a matter of fact, I'm looking at these, a lot of these issues from a sort of management, management science perspective. So there are a lot of reasons why people um, say that youth soccer is broken and there, and the list is as long as, you know, the encyclopedia. But for the purposes of this show, we're not going to get into all of them. I'm going to talk about one of them that I see quite often. One of the reasons I see quite often. But my hypothesis is this reason or the uh, or the characterization of this reason that they give is a little too simplistic. That's my hypothesis. So when you start talking about youth soccer and you talk to folks in the establishment, you talk to other parents as well. It's often said that one of the issues we have in America is we place winning or we prioritize winning over development. Again, we prioritize short-term games of gains of winning over the long-term sustained um, growth and nurturing of development. And, in many cases, it's positioned to us that we are, you know, in America, we're quite unique in this regard. Like everybody else has figured out that you got to focus on long term development. But the boo boos and youth soccer and the crazy parents, on the other hand, are just nope, you got to win today. You're eight years old, you know, we got to win. That's a indication of how much my child is development developing. And not only are the parents putting pressure on the coaches to do this. Uh, many coaches are doing the same thing, right? And this is sort of what folks are saying. Well, I I have a problem with that analysis of the situation. And I have a problem with that analysis for a couple of reasons. Number one, and it goes back to my management accounting um, days, When you say that folks prioritize winning over development at the detriment of of our children, the assumption has to be they know how to develop children and they just choose to prioritize winning. So I know exactly what I need to do to uh, to develop youth soccer players. And you're giving me your money to do so. But um, I'm not going to do that because I'm trying to cater to you as a parent in this case, and or I'm trying to recruit or I have some profit incentive. So I'm not going to do what I know is right. And instead, I'm going to I'm going to um, choose to win. So it's some kind of intentionality there. So so that that to me has to be the assumption. 
So, but I've talked to a lot of coaches and I've dealt with a lot of coaches and I am a coach. Unless all of them are just lying through their teeth, which may be the case. I'm not saying it's not, but I would be surprised. Hopefully it's not. If all, unless all of them are just lying, at least in their heads, they don't think that's what they're doing. I never met a coach in who, who publicly says, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to win, even if it means we're not going to develop players. And some of you listening may say, yeah, but they're just acting. They, they, they are doing that, but they don't want to say it publicly. And that could be the case. But man, all the hundreds of coaches I've interacted with in person and all the thousands I've interacted with verbally, they're, they don't, they would have to be the greatest actors and, it's, and actresses in the world to keep this facade up for so long that they actually believe that they're developing players when in, in, in fact, when in fact they're not. And again, I'm not offering a, a recommendation or coming in a hard line. That may be the true assessment. And I know there are exceptions to the rule. That may be the true thing that someone has come in and in, in their head saying, listen, there's a, there's a pot of gold out there. Um, man, I don't even think these guys make that much money. But there's a pot of gold out there. And if I can just win, we're going to receive that. So, and that's that's why I'm throwing this out there to say, is that the mentality that the folks who are in the soccer establishment are seeing and, and these folks in the soccer establishment are just telling the parents something totally different at every opportunity because what I see on social media and what I hear and what the and what I'm being lectured to as a parent is that no, we want to focus on development and you need to understand that in order for your child to be successful in our program. That's what I'm hearing. Okay, so that's my first problem is the it you know, if you're going to frame it that way, the assumption has to be that the coach knows how to develop folks long term, but is choosing to win. And I'm not sure if that's the case. So another issue I have uh, with this winning versus development framework or assumption is that winning is at odds with development. Again, Winning is at odds with development. You can't the, you can't be developing long term and winning or there's no relationship. If there is a relationship, it's the opposite relationship. And I wrote I wrote a blog post about this to say, you know, if you listen in the youth soccer space, it's often explained to us Neanderthal parents that oh no no no. You know, you can't look at what you're seeing on the field in the games because we, us losing is just a result of us focusing on long-term development. And the other team that beat us, you know, five, nothing or whatever, they're focused on short-term gains and that's why they're winning. But over time, because these two are at odds with each other over time there, we will start winning and we will eclipse those teams who are winning early on. So there's a delayed gratification element there that, you know, you as parents, and and I'm being a little facetious here, don't understand. You you don't have any experience with delayed gratification um, outside of you soccer. And so we're going to explain this to you that what you're seeing on the field um, 
it's only a result of our commitment to long-term development because the two are at odds. I'm not going to go into too much detail um, as to why I don't think that's the right paradigm to look at it. But let me just say in short, and I wrote an article about this and I'll, I'll share this, that, you know, if I have three, if I got three kids for a year, right, we and we use, let's use uh, basketball as an example. Forget about soccer because that's obviously too complicated. I got three kids, you have three kids, and they have basic um, abilities at the start. I happen to believe, and I get them for a year and you have them for a year. I happen to believe that if I if I work with them on the fundamentals consistently, if I teach them the game at a level that's consistent with their age, it's developmentally appropriate, you know. And as a result of that, and we're using basketball as an example, they can dribble really well with both hands. They are aware of their surroundings. They are committed to playing defense, and they understand their role there. They spend um, a disproportionate amount of time on the ball, so they're they're good there. They can shoot a little bit better than the average um, kids their age. We squeeze the most amount of time out of practice, and we run it efficiently. I happen to believe, especially in the youth soccer context, that team is going to win consistently. They won't win all the time because um, – there's some friction there, right? You you can score fluke goals, things can happen, you can have a bad day. But they're going to win consistently, assuming they're playing kids at their same sort of age age level, right? So then, yeah, playing two, two years up, that's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. That is a form of losing in order to develop, but we're just talking about I'm playing this, uh, a kids, kids that are similar um, age is mine. I believe that if I do those things in practice and I'm really um, hammering these skills uh, that they need and I'm really getting the most out of training, we in the youth soccer context, based on what I have seen, we are going to win more often than not. There are a few exceptions to that because it is a lot of friction. For example, you know, you could play a team where some kids are just way more developed at a, at the same age and you may run into some trouble there but again that's not going to be the norm and also there are times where you ask your kids to do stuff like play out of the back you hear that a lot or do some other stuff that makes them especially uh, vulnerable at that younger ages and then the kids can press and and get um and get some early scores or you are indeed trying to pass you're trying to move and the other team is pressing really hard. You know, I've seen occasions where that definitely results in a loss. But quite frankly, that happens at every level. But consistently, day in and day out, I actually don't think the two things are at odds with each other if the time parameter is sort of equal. Meaning, yes, if my if it's day one of me working with my team, I can say, yeah, we, we're not going to win initially because I just started with these guys. But assuming that we control for that, that time factor, I do think there's a positive, not negative, there's a positive correlation to what happens on the practice field and what happens during the games. I actually think that there's a positive relationship there. And I don't think that's something that parents, I would not advise parents to ignore 
what's happening in the game um, at all. But it's just one metric. And I don't want to get into a wheeze on that, but, you know, when I'm looking, because this is going to go to the tip, when there's more than one reason that you lose a game. If I look and if, I, if you're losing possession because the kids are really, the, your opposition is just faster, stronger, and bigger, and they're just pressing you and there's just nothing you can do about it, that's one thing. If you're losing possession because you got your coach or, you know, your trainer is not working on your first touch or not enough, or you're not opening up, or all this kind of stuff. That's another thing, and I think a lot of times we kind of lump the two together when we start having this winning versus development conversation. Okay, so don't want to ramble on too much, but I wanted to tee that up to say, you know, I'm throwing this out there so that our parent trainers, not parent trainers, sorry, so that our club directors and coaches and professionals and all these guys can hear it, and then we're going to have some insightful maybe a little debate a little banter conversations later on the show where they can help me refine my thinking if you will now to my recommendation from from a club perspective first and then we're going to get to the parent trainer i don't think it's an issue of winning versus development i, I think it's an issue of how our clubs are currently structured and how they're set up and they're set up in a way that, uh, and there's some quote out there, I can't remember exactly, but they're set up in a way to get the results that you see. In other words, the way they're organized is set up to incentivize people to do certain things. And it actually doesn't, in my opinion, doesn't even have anything to do with pay to play or not. If you're organized this way, you got the results that you're seeing happening, the behaviors that you're seeing um, are driven in part by the way the organization is organized. And so I did a YouTube video, and I'm going to write a podcast about, uh, a, a blog post about this as well, and I'm going to try to explain it to the best of my ability. I did a YouTube video that I entitled Reimagining the Club Structures, and I think if we can change some of our youth soccer club structures, then some of these conflicts that we're talking about in terms of winning versus development may go away, and then some of the focus on development that we are looking for may be enhanced. So we know how the typical youth soccer club is set up. Usually there is um, kids at each age and those kids are then divided into teams based on skill level normally. And those team, each of those teams gets a single coach. And in management terms, we would call that coach a generalist, meaning they, they're responsible for, in general, all the areas of that child's um, coaching, and sorry, not the coaching, but development. So they're, they're responsible for delivering the uh, tactical instruction, whatever that is at that age. They're responsible for delivering the technical instruction, whatever that is. And they're also, they're also responsible for managing the gaming program right? Literally being on the sidelines doing the games. And they're also responsible for managing the parent interactions as well. And then they have some other responsibilities. So quite frankly, the coach has a lot of responsibilities uh, within on the pitch. And then they got this whole other set of responsibilities off the pitch as well. And that's how it's typically set up. And you're with that coach for 10 months. And then um, and assuming everything works out well, you some clubs you'll stay with that coach, some cl clubs you move on to another coach. But that's the general setup. Well, the 
problem I see with this setup, there are a number of problems. Number one, I actually don't think many coaches, and there's no, again, I'm not knocking them in this regard, many people have the skills, the motivation, and the toolkit to manage all aspects of a youth soccer player's development. They just don't. It's just too much. I can't do it. You can. It's just too much to get it all done right. And they would be better served if they were able to focus on a more narrower scope. That's number one. Number two is because those same coaches also have to manage that parent relationship, there's even more added pressure to deliver, um, I guess, a product or coach in a way that appeases the parents, even if it's not intentional. And, and I can tell you as a clinic, I mean, as a manager of a clinic, I get that. You know, you, you, you know, the parents are watching and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But, you know, you, you, you're aware and you have to kind of do things to make sure that the communication is there. And that's that's a that's a weird situation. So you have that. And then I think then you take that same coach who is responsible for, again, quote unquote, the long term development of the child. And you put them in a gaming program where all the visual trappings. Right. All everything that happens on that day is it looks exactly like a an adult league is just for kids. So you have a referee, you have goalkeepers, you have a score, you have official lines. So it looks like it's almost like it looks like it's important. It acts like it's important. But we're supposed to tell everybody, no, but it's actually really not important. Well, it's kind of hard to say that when you when it has all the trappings and all the sensory stuff of something that's important. So that's another issue. So what would I do? What would be my proposal if I could wave a magic wand and create a youth soccer club? What would I do differently? Well, I would change the structure a bit and I would divide my club up into four main categories. The first is the technical sort of technical specialist. That's one groups of group of people. Now, remember, and let me say this, you're not adding more coaches or adding more staff. You may add more volunteers because the their focus will be very specific, but you're not adding more. You're just dividing them up a little bit differently. So, again, instead of having those 100 kids with 10 coaches, you still have those 100 kids and you still have those 10 coaches, but you divide them up a little differently. So in the first division for the staff is the technical specialist. And I'm going to go over the categories and then we'll dig deeper. The second division of the staff or the group of the staff, the department for this matter, are those who are the team folks, the, the tactical and team um, coaches. Okay. The third group are what I'm calling the gaming program coaches. Those are the ones who specialize in the gaming format and getting the most out of the gaming format. And then the final group is the other. So they, these are doing all that other stuff that um, you have to do to run a club. So maybe it's interacting with parents. It's making sure team snap is up and running. Just other stuff, other duties, right? Now, when you hear that, I know, again, your first reaction may be, that's great. But now, instead of 10 coaches, we have to have 40. No, because they should still share responsibilities, but they have a specific specialization. And then in my view, what that looks like on the ground is one plus one will likely equal three. 
So, for example, on Monday, and again, I'm going to make this up, on Mondays and Tuesdays, the technical specialists are running the technical trainings. And they, their role is to make sure not only are they delivering technical, and, we, and it changes to each age group, but not only are they de- delivering the technical curriculum um, during those sessions, but they're also delivering remedial um, training to those kids who need it. And in addition to that, so they're delivering the technical training to all the kids. They're delivering remedial um, training to those kids who need it. And then they're working with the other coaches to make sure that the technical curriculum is implemented throughout the rest of the soccer training. So in this case, it's the team and the gaming. All right, so that's the technical folks. Then you have those team coaches. Their job is to say, okay, you're giving me a child who has been working on this move, working on that move. We're going to make sure we tie that into what we're doing. And their sessions are going to look very similar to what you probably typically see in the typical average youth soccer practice. That's the small side of games. Some of the tactical analysis, the 1v1s, 2v2s, the 2v3s overlapping, all the stuff that you see in a typical youth soccer practice. These coaches, the the team coaches are taking that and they are applying the technical stuff, the the technical training that the kids receive, they're applying it into a game format. And notice I haven't said team. So all these hundred players in this case, they're in a training pool. Yes, divided up by their skill level. Yes, broken into teams, if you will, and or groups. I would argue it's groups so that it's manageable. But they're not on a stoic, solid team for the next 10 months. They're in a training pool and the coaches now are able to share Resources. So you remember I said you're not enlarging the coaching pool. So during that technical session on Monday, those team coaches may have small breakout sessions, but they're also there to support the technical trainer and, and actually learn from the, um, the technical trainers and also uh, building synergies. And then we also have to be clear that the coaches now are able to choose an area that they want to focus on or a group that they want to be in that fits their personality and fits their um, maturation. So for example, if it's day one and a coach joins, I may encourage them to say, listen, you have a little bit of experience. You f- let's focus on the unopposed technical stuff with you. We'll pair you up with some experienced uh, trainers, but you're going to be making sure that the kids get these touches on the ball, which you know, again, people may have a view on this, but might be easier than managing an entire team training session. But then during the team training sessions, that technical coach who lacks experience is observing, is shadowing and is helping that team trainer who may have more experience manage a slightly enlarged group of kids effectively. Then we go on to the gaming program. Now, here's the thing. And I've dealt with hundreds of kids. And many of you may not believe this. They just want to play the game. They don't really care about all the stuff that we layer on, all the structure that we layer on 
into a game, they're really just happy playing the game, right? So what that means is, you know, you have the you have coaches who are dedicated to ensuring that there's a great gaming program. And at the younger ages, that may look like, you know, on one field, we're doing 3v3s, right? Other field, we're doing 7v7s with some of the more experienced players. We're, we're subbing in, we're subbing out. Yes, we have, we might have a referee, maybe a parent also referees. Yes, everyone's wearing uniforms, but it might be some intramural action going on. It's a gaming program. And then, you know, um, we will do that day in and day out on the weekends. But guess what? If we haven't done what we needed to do in training, because not everybody's in this my club, not everybody's going to play a game every single weekend because you lose valuable training time on the weekends. Then um, if we haven't done that, then we may not have a game this week. We may just train on that Saturday or Sunday. And then we reserve the tournaments for those structured games where we can pull kids, create teams. And yes, we're going in there and putting the pressure on them because that's an important part of the game as well to actually win and bring home the silverware. So that's how the gaming program would work. And we would, we would play other teams and we um, and we would play each other and we would have various different formats. And I know the club directors out there whose heads are about to explode saying, listen, you're not the smartest guy in the room. We thought about all that, but these leagues that we participate in have all these rules. And if we're going to participate in those leagues, we got to, we got to follow. Um, we have to follow this. And my, my retort to that is yes, we're talking in theory, but even if we can, even if we can incorporate some of this stuff, so maybe we have our own intramural league within the club, even if we're able to incorporate some of this stuff, um, I think we may have better outcomes. Okay, and then all the other stuff. So here's here's what I typically see in many of my youth soccer experiences or, or, or the youth soccer experiences of our parents. There's a 25-year-old uh, ex-college player. He takes on his first team. He's responsible um, for training a group of, you know, 11 or 12, 8-year-olds, never been a parent, you know, and again, no judgment there, but just doesn't have a lot of experience with working with kids. And now not only are they supposed to manage the whole team, they got to manage all the parent personalities, many of which will be crazy. We talked about that. They got to implement a technical curriculum, implement a tactical curriculum, manage the game situation as well. And they need to do, and then they need to also add a level of differentiation, which is fancy, which is a fancy word of, Identifying those kids who may be getting some extra training at home and make the drills and the um, experience challenging for them, but also um, give the extra training to the kids within the same practice, by the way, within the kids who are just starting. So that young first-year coach has to manage all of that. And I just think that's really hard. Where in my system or my club, that first-year coach, we're putting them in in the technical training group and they're almost in like an apprenticeship where they're facilitating and helping someone implement a technical um, curriculum. And then during the games, they're actually sitting there taking stats to see how are my children's first touches? How, what are they doing in this regard? They, they have a very specific focus and then they're able to lend support during the team, team trainings. I believe that coach is then set up for success and not failure. And then going all the way full circle when we start talking about winning versus development, if you ostensibly see that 
this week your kid played, your child played with this group of team, this group of kids in a 7v7. Next week they pulled them out and they played 3v3. And the next week they had a different coach and he or she did that. And then next week this coach did this. And next week they didn't have a game. They went and trained a little bit more instead of um, playing in the game. And then at the end of the month, all the kids are looking forward to a tournament um, where they where they form one team and they really play in this tournament and they put their best foot forth. I think you are then sending a message to the parents. You are sending a message to the coaches. And you're sending a message to the players that the games, in terms of winning, they're just not that important right now. What's important is that you have fun and that you're able to apply the lessons that we're trying to teach you in the, on the training pitch. You're able to apply those, apply those consistently under pressure um, and accurately. Right. So so that's what the game program is for. And just and then again, just to purely have fun. And I got that part of the idea. If, if you listen to our podcast, you know that my son started a very small club that was not part of any of these leagues. So for the first year, almost year and a half, his club didn't play games. They had a few friendlies here and there. They just trained. I thought that was brilliant. All those Saturdays that we waste going back and forth to a game, they were training on the ball. And I don't know if they were doing it intentionally. I think they were doing it because they were trying to find a league that would accept them. And what did I do as a parent trainer? I signed my son up for a rec league and then some Hispanic leagues in the area where he could get some games in and enjoy his soccer that way. But that was great because he didn't really, he was part of the team, but he wasn't really part of the team. So there was no pressure. He could experiment. He was just having fun, but he was getting his training um, somewhere else. And that's kind of how I started thinking about that. Plus my uh, management accounting experience. So I, I wanted to throw that out there as an alternative way of thinking about um, youth soccer structures in America. I know our more educated um, club directors, coaches, and pros may say, actually, there are a lot of clubs like that in my area or in the states you just don't know about them, and I, and I would love to hear that feedback. I would love to hear feedback from our international guests who say, actually, that's how our clubs are set up or our clubs are not set up. And I definitely want to hear feedback in terms of is this even viable from a fiscal perspective? Because again, I don't know how the budgets of these clubs and and sort of what they're working with there. But that's my opinion on that. And I think that would be a great way to uh, align incentives, align goals and set the culture within our youth soccer clubs instead of oversimplifying it by saying, you know, coaches have to take personal initiative not to focus on winning over development okay so now on to the tip to the parent trainer well guess what none of what i just said is going to actually happen in your child's uh, soccer development lifetime unfortunately so you're going to have to deal with what you have right now and if you're like me um hopefully you have some options hopefully there are a couple of clubs in your area and you try and you have a chance to look at them and see which one is a good fit for you and in this particular show, I'm actually going to narrow the scope on the soccer stuff because the non-soccer stuff, first of all, is personal. And secondly, that list is just infinitely long. And so I'm just focused on the soccer stuff. 
And then within the soccer stuff, um, I'm going to focus on one particular screening process that I do. And I came up with this screening process after talking to so many parents, friends of mine, who would go around and evaluate different teams and go to different games and evaluate different clubs because they were preparing, rightfully so, for the time that their child would leave their current club. And I used to ask them, you know, you know, what are you looking for? Because I'm actually not even a soccer guy. So I'm like, when I see these little fellows, what are girls? What are you looking at so I can understand if you know this is a good fit? And I, the answers were very, you can imagine, um, based on the person's personality. And that made me think, well, boy, if I were talking to 100 folks, which is probably less, um, more listeners than my podcast. But if I were talking to a hundred folks, hundred parents, and they had to evaluate a hundred clubs really quickly, what would I tell them they needed to look at? Well, there are two things that I would advise as you look at two and a possible two and maybe three, but definitely two things that I would use. And I use as the first step in screening my youth soccer club. And this is for those competitive clubs. You eight and above. So so-called competitive clubs, you eight and above. This is what I look for when I'm screening them. The first criteria is are in a game or practice situation, are they able to consistently connect at least five passes, especially in a game. Again, I look, even when I'm evaluating my own son's team, are they able to consistently connect five passes? That's the first screen process. If they're not able to do that consistently, and I'm comparing them to a club that can do that consistently, then my intrigue is peaked for the club towards the club that can do that consistently and that tells me I want to dig a little deeper the next thing um, I look at is when their players receive the ball do they check up so if I you get the ball instinctively is the first thing you do do you start looking up and checking up for your surroundings or do you just receive the ball and, you know, put your head down and go as fast as you can and wherever you're trying to go? Those are the two things I look for. And, and I said a possible and a possible a possible might be an out of possession. When you do not have the ball, are you working to get back into some kind of shape? So that's two and a possible. But if you if you can manage those first two, then you know, that's the, then, then now we can have a conversation. You've passed the first, the first less, the first um, stage of the interview, if you will. Now that's not everything obviously that you need in order to decide on a soccer club. Right. But that is something that I consider to be a very quick screening tool. And I feel I have to qualify this to say, you know, yeah, of course, if the the coach is screaming at the kids every two seconds. Of course, if you don't get a good fit, all that stuff, I think, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to provide some nuanced information that um, you may not hear um, that often. And this sounds strange. 
surely there's more than that. Surely there's more to that from a soccer perspective um, when you're trying to screen a youth soccer club. And then the other retort I often hear is, yeah, but they're only U8 or U9. You can't possibly expect that. And then another common response is, well, yeah, but that just depends if the club is playing possession. And so I'll, I'll, I'll try to deal with each one uh, succinctly and wrap it up quickly. So remember, I'm a management accountant. So what I tend to do is say, okay, what are those big drivers of the organization? And, and how can we come up with some simple metrics to evaluate those so that we can then use those to, un, to check the health of the company or the organization without having to go into the weeds every, every single second that we want to do this, do so. So from a, I guess from an accounting perspective, if your you know, revenue is growing and your profitability is growing, then you can assume that you know, sales are ticking up and so people are adopting the product more and you're becoming more efficient or at least you're not becoming less efficient as you increase. So the, and then, but if I see one of those, if I see revenue going up and the profit going down or profit margins going uh, up and the revenue going down, then I need to investigate because that may not be a problem, but that just doesn't seem intuitive. Okay. Well, it's the same thing in youth soccer. There are so many things that have to be going in the training pitch for you to get, you know, 10 year olds and nine year olds and 11 year olds to consistently pass the ball five times uh, successfully with opposition. There's so many things that club has to get right and work on in the training pitch that that's a very good sign that there's some teaching and learning and instruction going on Monday through Friday there. That's number one. And then the ability, and then when you start seeing kids check up consistently, yes, the coach's son and, you know, the crazy parent tra trainer's son may do that. But when you start seeing across the board uniformly kids receiving the ball and checking up, this is not intuitive for young people. So again, Something has to be going on Monday through Friday, every day, day in and day out for kid for you know universally for the kids to be doing that. And again, and I'm gonna tell you, it doesn't even matter how technical they are. How technical technical they are speaks to their ability to execute this. I'm not worried about if they lose the ball because they don't necessarily have the technical ability to do or execute what they want to do. I'm talking about they they've been taught to think about what they're doing as well as um as part of playing the game so so that's another screening and then i guess i said another retort you hear is oh yeah but you're talking about possession well possession style of play in its most basic form says listen we're going to hold the ball so long and we're going to attack with the ball so much if you think about it like a boxer we're throwing so many offensive punches that, yeah, even though that defensive boxer is going to last a little bit longer because they're not engaged with us, we're throwing so many punches that eventually we're going to wear them down. And we, in our strategy is to hold and maintain the ball, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the time because chasing that ball is a very exhaustive uh, thing. If you don't believe me, go out there and chase the ball with three people passing it. You're going to see you get tired very quickly. So that's what I, that's how I think about possession. The ability to connect five passes, on the other hand, is just a fundamental thing that all teams need to be able to do in order to move the ball up the pitch. 
that's not possession. That's a bare minimum, in my opinion. And again, I'm laying this out here so that people in the know can tell me where I'm wrong. So I don't really think about it as a possession situation. And in terms of, you know, the age and, and what the children are able to do, I've coached um, my son's U7 recreational team. And again, parents will have a view on this. Coaches will have a view on whether or not this is the right thing, or do, right or wrong thing to do. But even in a short, few short pack practices, based on the, how I do the drills, in the games, I'm able, um, they're able to control the ball 10, 7, 10, even 15 passes. And I, I have video there. I'm not bragging in this regard. I'm just saying it's possible if that's what you prioritize getting wide, moving the ball, getting into space attacking uh, when you get into the final third you can kind of teach that to kids at very young ages believe it or not and you definitely can teach it to a um, to a 10 year old that's with you four days out of the week and that's my opinion so in terms of expectations i think this is the ability to connect five passes the ability to check up and the ability to get back into shape on defense those are um what i consider to be a minimum for a competitive soccer program so so i'll leave with this and i don't want to step on any toes i'm actually trying to be a very nice guy but in this particular case i do want to be critical on um, on clubs and i want to give parents some information that they can use to go back to their clubs and help themselves evaluate their teams have a look at your next game and just get a notebook out and count or do it in your head if you just want to enjoy the game count the number of times either team connects at least five passes and i gotta tell you we went down to a tournament um i took my son to guest play in a tournament down in uh, an area area that will be be nameless and me and another parent who is sort of a coach parent as well we tried that and this was a so-called elite tournament in a gold bracket and neither team was able to connect ever i think one time the whole game neither team connected at least um five passes and we just shook our head like you know this is not this is just not soccer right so i hope you found this tip helpful i intentionally made this show a little provocative for my youth soccer coaches club directors and trainers because i want to stimulate conversation and and i want to be set correct when i invite you guys onto the show to help educate our parents on what they should and shouldn't be doing and how they should evaluate um, a team in, from a nuanced perspective. We know the coach has to be work well with the kids and your kid has to enjoy going to practice and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I hope we know that. Maybe we don't. But what are some of the other things that you look for um, if you had to look and evaluate three or four clubs that you were considering sending your child to? So those are the types of questions I want to ask our folks. And again, on the back end, I want to ask them what we should be doing in detail. I hope you found this um, podcast helpful. Again, my name is Neil Crawford. If you haven't checked out Anytime Soccer Training, uh, Anytime Soccer Training, I encourage you to do so at um, www.anytime-soccer.com. Let's get better together.